Let's take our Bibles and turn together to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 9. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. We'll begin together in verse number 42. I want to talk this morning in, in general terms about sin. In fact, what I would like to say to you is that true discipleship is serious about fighting sin. There is the mistaken belief, it seems, among many, that because Jesus freely forgives us of our sin, that we are given license to sin freely with the expectation that he will just continue to forgive us regardless of what it is that we do. There's just enough truth in that statement to be very, very dangerous. It is true that when we come to faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. All our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But what that does for us is not to give us license to sin freely. It moves us, it compels us, it motivates us to labor, to conform to the image of God's only Son, Jesus Christ. If the notion of God's forgiveness does anything but move you to strive for personal holiness, you are misunderstanding the nature of the forgiveness that we find in Christ. Now, the great theologian Barney Fife once said, preacher can never preach too much on sin. And I suppose that's right. But, but I, 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 when I talk about sin in such broad terms, here's what I'm afraid of. You're, you're going to hear this in sort of a general, generic kind of way with very little specific personal application of these principles to your life. So let's probe a little here. What are your sins? What are the sins that you, or what is the sin that you struggle with? The sin that just hangs around. It's been around so long, there are seasons of conviction, and then you just sort of suppress it. You're able to push it back and forget about it. You're not troubled so much by it, and you just sort of move on. And you almost feel like because you've alleviated the guilt, you can grow a little for now, and then you're reminded once more of the sin that's still there. It's like an appendage. It never goes away. And there are different people struggle with different sins. There, there are, in our mind, categories of sin, sin that we take more seriously than, than other sin. The reality is all sin separates us from God. It is a hindrance to us in our walk with Him. It, it, it has a way of desensitizing us to the presence and the leadership of God's Spirit in our life. So what's your sin? And, and, I, and I want to encourage you, and I'm, I'm pleading with you, that through the course of our study of this text, that you'll personalize the message, that you'll think in terms of your own sin, what needs to be addressed in your life. See, here's what I know. There's a good 50, 100, maybe 200 of you this morning. You came, and you had suppressed the notion of your sin, and you were looking forward to a service when you could set that aside, and you could just worship, and all could be well with your soul. And now I have antagonized you, and you're forced to think about that sin, and I hope that under the leadership of the Spirit, you will reckon with that sin. 
Mark chapter 9, verses 42 and following. I would invite you now, if you would, to stand out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Here's what Jesus says. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell, the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. It's a little difficult to look at the text sequentially, so we'll draw some principles from the text in general and comment on different sections throughout our message. I want you to notice first in verse 42 where Jesus says, whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This verse serves as the transition away from last week's text. And the implication is this. There are some things worse than the earthly consequences for your sin. We'll distinguish between earthly and eternal consequences for sin in just a moment. In verse 43, Jesus probes deeper into the problem of sin and the presence of sin in our life. Verse 43 says, if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. He would say in verse 45, if your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. In verse 47, if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It may be that Jesus is simply changing things up to guard against too much repetition, but the repetition seems here to emphasize the importance of dealing with the presence of sin in our life. In each instance, referencing some appendage of our physical body that causes the presence of sin, that causes us to sin. If your hand causes your sin, if your foot causes your sin, if your eye causes your sin. That, that is, if what you do is of detriment to your soul, cut it off. Stop doing what you're doing. If the things that you pursue cause your sin, cut it off. Stop doing what you're doing. If the thing that you see and set your affection upon causes your downfall or is detrimental to your soul, tear it out or gouge it out, for it's better to enter the kingdom of God maimed, lame, or with one eye than to perish eternally in hell. In each instance, Jesus is describing something of the cause of our sin. That's the first thing I want you to observe in our passage. The cause of sin in our life. And there are two. The first is indicated explicitly by Jesus here. The cause of sin in my life and in your life 
is your own personal choice. The reason that you sin is because you want to. That's what you want to do. Here's a life principle that that is always true. People will do what they want to do. The reason you do the things that you do is ultimately because you want to do them. Even in the case of addiction, where there are deep-seated patterns of behavior, habits that have been built into our life over the course of years and years and years of practicing a particular sin, ultimately, what we want is to alleviate the pain of the absence of of that sin or that substance more than we want rightness with God. We always do what we want to do. That is irrevocably and irreversibly true. Which is why so much of the task of preaching the gospel, whether it be in the formal setting such as this morning's uh, worship service, or one-to-one, kneecap to kneecap and eyeball to eyeball with lost people who need to hear of the gospel of Jesus. So much of our responsibility in that endeavor is to make much of Jesus, to invite them to taste and to see that indeed he is good, that what may be found in Jesus is better than anything this world can afford, that you can scratch at all the itches, you can chase and you can labor and you can strain, but you will never find in this cruel and perverse world what I have found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You sin because you want to. That's a cold and hard fact. When when you make the decision to sin in your own life, it is because you want for the outcome of that sin more than you want to be near to the God of heaven. You can dress it up. You can cast your sin as respectable, less significant than someone else's, But the cold, hard facts are that every sin is an act of treason against a holy God. The first reason there's sin in your life and there's sin in my life is because we want it there. We like it there. Come on now. Y'all tracking with me? It may make you uncomfortable. You may feel a little more self-righteous than the pastor this morning. But those, friends, are the cold, hard facts. There, there is a, an even deeper answer as to the presence of sin in your life. It's one that's not mentioned by Jesus in our passage. It's only implied, but it's critical to our understanding of the gospel. You sin because of your own personal choice, practically. But on a theological level, on a, on a deeper level, you sin because of Adam's curse. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, we were, as humanity, bound up in Adam. Adam is our father, ultimately. The reason you sin is because you're just like your daddy. You you bear the characteristic trait of his person and personality. He was a sinner, and because of his sin, you are likewise. In other words, you are condemned as a sinner, not only because you choose to sin on a daily basis. Even before that, 
You are condemned as a sinner because of what Adam did so many years ago. Y'all tracking with me? Now, for Westerners, this seems patently unfair. That we would be condemned because of what someone else did. That we would be cursed simply by virtue of the fact that lifeblood flows in our veins. Lifeblood marked by the sin of our forebears. It seems unfair, doesn't it? Well, you don't want fairness, trust me. And, and, it's, the, and it's the reason that Paul selects Adam's curse as, as a way of illustrating the beauty of the gospel. Because we are, we are sinners because of what someone else did. But there's a second Adam. God sent his son, Jesus, who bore our sin on the cross, who died as a sacrifice, as an offering, as the atonement for our sin. He was raised the third day. And we are, as Paul describes us, not only in Adam at the fall, but by faith in Jesus, we are in Christ at the resurrection. So that when we stand before God, we are declared righteous, not because of things that we did, but because of the perfect righteousness of one who stood in our place. You may not like this notion of being cursed in sin because of someone else's choice, but hey, who isn't excited about being declared righteous because Jesus made all the right choices? The cause of sin is personal choice and Adam's curse. Superficially and on the deepest level, we are sinful people. We are sinful people. Somehow along the way, we have taken Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the, of the glory of God, and we've used that to soothe our conscience even in the face of our sinfulness. Here's how we've cast Romans 3.23. Well, everybody sins. No one's perfect. That drives me crazy. Here's my, here's my most recent major pet peeve. He's not a bad person. He just does bad things. What is a bad person if it's not a person who does bad things? You, you are a bad person. All of you. We are all bad people. We are irreversibly cursed. The blood that flows in our veins is cursed blood. And the decisions that we make on a daily basis are often the product of our cursed condition. We are irreversibly broken apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. It's implied through the text, no one is arguing with Jesus about the fact that people sin. There's no pushback on the part of the disciples. They simply work with Christ in every illustration of the seriousness of sin and the need to root out sin in our own personal life. Because every person who has moved beyond the highest degree of self-righteousness, must confess that we are sinful people. If, if, you just, if you just take, for just a moment, let's play with this idea. The, the curse of the 1030 service is that no one's coming after. That means we're on no time limit, by the way. <laughs> if, if you were evaluated exclusively, by your own judgment. In other words, if you just think through your life and you say, people shouldn't do this, people shouldn't do this, people shouldn't do this. And we just took all of those excerpts from your life and that was the standard by which you were judged. You couldn't meet that standard. 
We are a sinful people in desperate need of God's grace. Here's the part of the message where you personalize the message and you examine yourselves and you begin to look for secret sin in your own life. The cause of sin is personal choice and Adam's curse. Here's the second thing I want you to see. I want you to take special note of the eternal consequences of sin. Jesus doesn't deal with temporary consequences in our text. He doesn't say, thou shalt not commit adultery, and if you do, it will cost you your marriage. He, he, he does not say, thou shalt not give yourself to drunkenness, and if you do, you, you could be in big trouble for this. Jesus does not say even things like pride comes before the fall. He, he simply says that on the other side, there is, there is judgment for our sin. That's really the more pressing issue, isn't it? Not the earthly consequences for our sin. There are earthly consequences. We feel them every day. We are stung by the consequences of our own personal choices and the presence of Adam's curse in our life. But beyond that, hear Jesus when he says, it has been appointed unto man once to die, and then there is the judgment. Jesus presses here the eternal significance of your sin. He uses here the language of, of hell. The idea of a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched over and over and over. Jesus presses this issue that it's better to enter into the kingdom maimed or lame or without one eye than it is to perish in the place of everlasting fire. Whole. Here he uses explicitly the language of of hell. The Greek term is Gehenna. Distinction is made between Hades and Gehenna in the New Testament. The, the, the word comes from the Old Testament idea, and in fact, a very real place in the Old Testament, a valley outside the city of Jerusalem known as the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. It's a, it's a place where you would dump your trash. If you grew up in rural Mississippi before the days of the pull to the road garbage can, there was always a back road where people weren't supposed to throw things out, but they always did. The Valley of the Sons of Hinnon was kind of like that place. Such a popular place that they would keep it burning and trash could be thrown onto the pile where the burning was happening so that you didn't amass too much of a pile of trash. It was always burning and it always bore a certain stench. But by the time of the New Testament, and in Jesus' illustration here, it becomes a metaphor for the place the Bible describes as hell, a place of judgment after our life here on earth, a place of eternal fire and torment, a place of judgment post-existence here. A very real place. I have never been counted among those preachers who preach about hell with a grin or a certain gladness. I'm always a little concerned about what that means or what's being suggested by that. It is a, a, a dreadful truth, but a truth nonetheless and one that must be addressed one that perhaps needs to be pressed a little more than, than, it, than it often is. Sin and hell are both realities that have to be reckoned with, truths that have to be dealt with. So, some have judged the idea of an everlasting hell as too much. There, there are theologians who would argue against an everlasting hell who have suggested that it's, it's too much a penalty for, for a temporary sin. An eternal judgment for a temporary sin, is that a reasonable thing? think about it in, in, in these terms. If, if, you, if you assault some member of the church, I used myself as an illustration in the 9 o'clock service, but I was afraid people would get, a, get the idea. 
If you, if you just assault a random member of the church, me, for instance, um, the, the police will come and they will take you away. You will pay, in all likelihood, a modest fine, depending on how severe the assault is, and you will eventually be granted your freedom. But let's say there's a dignitary passing through, for instance, maybe the president. He's passing through DeSoto County on a campaign stop. Doesn't matter if you like the president or not, but you just decide today I'm going to assault the president. You, you will not be granted your freedom anytime in the near future. In fact, you will pay severely. See, the, the punishment for your crime is, is not so much about the degree or the nature of the crime itself, but the person offended. It's, 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 it's different because you've committed your offense against a dignitary. Ladies and gentlemen, your sin, before it's ever a violation of the rights of someone else, a sin against yourself or, or, or even your family, is an act of treason against a holy, holy, holy God. There isn't punishment severe enough to make suitable uh, for your sin. There are eternal consequences for the things that you do. You think exclusively in terms of earthly consequences, and those can be great motivators for us, but make no mistake about it. There is coming a day when we will stand before the judgment bar of a holy God, and there'll be everlasting consequences, the eternal consequences of sin. Let me show you a third thing. Here's the good part. There, there is what Jesus describes here as the conquest of sin. In other words, there is the ability to overcome sin. Now, there's a, there's a second way that Romans 3.23, all of sin and come short of the glory of God, has been perverted. It, it, in the same way that it's been perverted as a way of sort of soothing our guilty conscience over the presence of sin in our life, it's, it's also been sort of distorted in a way to make us believe that somehow we are confined to patterns of sin for the duration of our life. There's nothing that you can do about your sin. It just is what it is, and you'll bear with it in the here and now. That's, that's the way it's always been, and that's the way it always will be. And true enough, you will struggle and wrestle with sin. I think the thing that I find most endearing about the promise of heaven is that there is no sin in heaven. I will never wake up on a Monday morning in heaven and wonder, will I struggle with this sin today? I will be free and free forevermore. But you are not bound to patterns of sin in your life endlessly. In Romans 6, Paul asks the question, since grace abounds, should we sin all the more? And the answer is, certainly not. And he begins to talk about how we have been joined with Jesus in the likeness of his resurrection, how we have been raised to walk in the newness of life, how there is freedom for us to walk faithfully in the Spirit. God has set us free to reach heights of obedience that we would have never reached on our own. And the conclusion that Paul comes to in Romans 6 is that the reason it's so dumb for Christians to sin is because we don't have to. That is not to say we escape the presence of sin altogether, but you are not bound to that sin that drug in behind you this morning. You don't have to live the way that you have lived anymore. For years, this debate centering around the issue of homosexuality has been raging within Christian circles about how much our genetic uh, history, how much we are born with a certain disposition towards sin. 
And for years, I've been saying, it doesn't matter. I was born with a disposition toward all manner of sexual immorality because I am a sinful person living under the curse of Adam's sin. But there is freedom from our sin in Jesus Christ. Here it's described for us something of how to overcome sin. In fact, in verses 43, 45, and 47 where Jesus gives the illustration, he's giving us answers as to how to overcome it. Really very practical answers as to how to overcome it. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If it's your eye, tear it out or gouge it out. Now, I'm not advocating for any amputations this afternoon after church. But I would suggest to you that there are very practical ways of putting some fences around certain areas of your life to guard against sin. If, if, you, if you're a man, and I suppose a lady too for that matter, that struggles with pornography, if that's a sin issue in your life, you might be discouraged to know how often that is a sin issue even in the church. There are some very practical steps that can be taken, like not carrying a smartphone with internet access 24 hours a day and seven days a week. That's not legalistic. That's wise. That's guarding yourself against temptation and the potential for error. Now, it doesn't change your heart. There's still a heart issue that needs to be addressed. When Jesus says, if you don't commit adultery, but you look at a woman lustfully, you've just as well committed adultery. He's not putting those two sins on the same plane. He's saying, even if you manage externally not to do this external sin, you still have the heart issue that has to be addressed. Only the gospel can do that. But, but here, practical steps are being taken to guard oneself from sin. The error that many Christian people have given themselves over to is the idea that because we have been saved by grace through faith, that what we're now waiting on to be sanctified is for God to touch us with a wand to change what we want and completely remove this sin from our life. We have convinced ourselves that celebrating the grace of God means that we can't give ourselves over to real labor, to striving, and to effort to purge our lives of sin. And listen, grace is not opposed to effort. It's just not. Now, your effort is is not a factor in your salvation, but your laboring under the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God is a considerable factor in your sanctification. It is the working out of your being made over into the image and the likeness of God's only Son. I'll never forget the first time I I heard a, a preacher say that we make war against our sin. And as a man, that, that appealed to me. The, the, the idea of, of bowing up and fighting, going to battle against the presence of sin in my own life. Are you laboring to defeat sin in your life? I remember the early days of my walk with Jesus and know anything about the Bible and know how to begin doing a Bible study. And I would just take a verse, maybe two verses, and I'd find the command and I'd spend the next day fighting the sin in my life that went against that command and doing all that I could to observe what Jesus taught me in that passage. We've all but given up on that approach to walking with Christ. There is a power that meets us there, that propels us 
to obedience. We must labor to be brought near to Jesus. Make war against your sin. I think maybe as much as anything, the problem with so much of the church today is, is that we're not e- easily distinguished from the world around us. We just do what everyone else does. There's an old Puritan phrase. In fact, there's an old Puritan book by this title. The Mortification of Sin. There was a time in the history of the church where people who believed and had a high regard for the grace of God still labored to purge their lives of sin, to kill the sin in their life, to mortify sin. We have not been exempted from the responsibility to do the same. The command to repent and believe the gospel is not merely a command for beginning our relationship with Jesus. It is the command of the king that hangs over every day, every hour, every minute, every second of our life. We are a repenting and believing people. Because that's what our Savior has commanded of us. A part of the conquest of sin in your life has to be your personal effort. You will not roll over tomorrow with a glowing disposition that is always and forevermore bent on doing what is right. It will come by building new habits into your life. By purging old sins. By meditating on the Word of God. Praying for power and help from the Spirit of God. Seriously searching the Word of God. and Looking your heart over. Finding even as the psalmist says. The secret sin that it too might be purged and addressed. Personal effort has to be a part of this process. There's something else that's described in verses 49 and 50. If you were reading along and you were reading along closely. This is the part of the passage when you thought. Well, I thought I was following, but now I'm lost. There in verse 49, the Bible says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Y'all all all got that? Here, Here I think is the key. This is not the kind of thing that we think about when we think about the Old Testament sacrificial system, but salt was a considerable part of that system. In fact, I can show you a few places in the Old Testament where the covenant of God with the people of God or the covenant of God specifically with David is referred to as the covenant of salt. In Leviticus 2.13, the Bible says, "...to season your offering with salt." Do not omit the salt of the covenant of God. Present salt with each of your offerings. In Exodus 30 and 35, salt is referred to with a par- as a part of uh, the celebration of the covenant. and It has a, a sanctifying effect. You go back to verse 49 and 50 and you sort of incorporate the imagery of covenant and the sacrificial system and the making of offerings for everyone will be salted with fire salt is good but if the salt should lose its flavor how can you make it salty seems to be a symbolic way of saying what Paul says in Romans 12 1 when he says present yourselves a living sacrifice an offering unto God which is your reasonable and acceptable service don't be conformed to this world but but transformed by the renewing of your mind 
Jesus seems to be saying we are going to be salted with fire. We are living sacrifices before the Lord. But if the offering itself loses its status of purified, if there is a commonness, an uncleanness about the sacrifice, of what benefit is the sacrifice before the Lord? The last sentence of verse 50, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another, is much easier. It's a reference to last week's passage where John said there was an exorcist who was casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't in our circle, so we said, see you later. Jesus seems to be saying to John specifically and other disciples, the problem with your divisions, the problem with you being overly exclusive about your circle is the presence of sin in your life. When sin comes into your life, not only does it divide, Jesus seems to be saying, but it also has everlasting consequences. And it has bearing on your usefulness as a living sacrifice unto God. If you give yourselves over as a living sacrifice, you are, in the words of Jesus here, well salted, useful, beneficial, profitable to the kingdom of God. In other words, a part of the conquest of sin has to be an unconditional surrender of our life unto Jesus. Yes, there is personal effort. There is laboring. There is striving. We are reading the Bible, finding the principle, working that out in our life. We're waging war against sin. And at the same time, we are surrendering ourselves to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Even as you labor, you do understand that your labor is not ultimately the answer. We are laboring to be brought near to God. James says, strive to be near God and God will bring you near to Him. It is that God meets us in our endeavors and He blesses and He brings us near Him, purging us of sin. This is how you overcome it. You strive. You languish to overcome the sin in your life. You strain and you sweat and you fight and you make war against your sin. And at the same time, you lay yourselves down. You surrender unconditionally to the Lord of your life. This is what we do. This is how we do it. What I I don't want to be guilty of suggesting this morning, what I want to make sure is right, is that you understand that having a relationship with Jesus, that having a good relationship with Jesus, is not about getting ourselves in order and then presenting ourselves an offering before the king. That's a lie from the devil, and it will prevent you from ever coming to the king. If you're, if you're waiting until you get it together to come to Jesus, you'll, you'll be waiting for all eternity. We don't, we don't get it together and come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and he puts it all together. The, the, the deal about Adam's curse is that it has left you forever bound in your sin. There is no freedom for you there. There, there is no freedom for righteousness in your life apart from Jesus because of Adam's curse. You are bound to that. You are enslaved to that. But by faith in Jesus, we are set free. And who the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. There's there's freedom in Christ to faithfully serve. 
You'll meet heights of obedience by faith in Jesus under the leadership of the Spirit that were literally impossible to you apart from Jesus. If, if you're here this morning, a sin-sick person, if you're here and you would have to confess that you have no control over your life, that you are bound to your sin. And we've, we've come up with so many ways in our culture to convince ourselves that we're on the right side when it comes to God. We have so dumbed down what it means to believe in God that virtually everyone is signing on to that. A few, a few weeks ago, maybe months ago now, and I think this conversation will be forever in my memory, I was in a, in a talk with, with a person, an adult, who was a, addicted to methamphetamines. And they were telling me about how they needed to get back to God, get back with God. Get, and I probably wasn't as compassionate as I needed to be in the moment, but, but the notion of getting back to God in their present state was just offensive. And what, what, I, what I explained, and, and this is an important concept to get your arms around, you don't need to get back to God. You need to get to God in the first place. And the very idea that you would claim that you're a worshiper of God when right now, clearly, methamphetamines are the God of your life is an offensive idea. You wake up in the morning and you think about serving this God. You go to bed at night and you think about serving this God. This controls your life. What controls your life is your God. Now, you can attach any name you want to attach to that, and for some of you, it's, it's, it's the kind of things that you have deemed so much more respectable. It may be your job. It may be the want for a certain status or a certain level financially. It may be your pride. It may be your vanity. But whatever controls your life, that is your God. You call it whatever you want to, but that is the God of your life. And this morning, you would have to confess that something or someone whose name is not Jesus is controlling your life. I would, in, I would invite you to taste and see that my God is good and that what he offers can't be found elsewhere. There is no other source of grace and forgiveness. There is only Jesus. There is no other way to heaven, no other point of access. There is only Jesus. I commend him to you. He's the answer to our sin issue. You want to conquer sin in your life? You begin at Calvary's cross, at the place where God's only Son shed His blood to atone for our sin, to be raised the third day. That's where you start. And then you labor and you strive under the power of the Spirit with the confidence of knowing that though I may fail today, there is ultimately and finally victory for me through the person and work of Jesus Christ.